Thanks for listening to Classics and Chill. I'm Justine Byrne, and I have a deep love for all things classical. This um, next series we're doing is Plato's Republic. I've been thinking really hard about the appropriate selection of literature for this particular moment in history. And while we could do Rawls, and we could do Hobbes, and we could do Mill, I thought maybe it would be best to go back to a foundational piece. So I'm so excited to share with you our series on Plato's Republic. We may go cover to cover about a half an hour at a time. And um, we'll be reading with my commentary and hopefully with your commentary. So you can check us out on Instagram at Classics and Chill. Um, or you can check me out on Instagram at Justine Byrne. And um, let us know how you liked the episodes. And we'll answer any questions you have there as well. Plato's Republic, Part 1. We're using the Groob translation, and I'm going to stick pretty closely to just the translation of the Platonic text, not the commentary of the authors in this particular translation. So we're going to start um, just as it was written, and we'll catch on to characters and who's around and what's happening, rather than spending lengthy amounts of time reading other authors' introductions. I trust us to do this kind of in a free-range style. I'm going to ask for your patience with the um, pronunciation of some Greek names, and also for your patience as I read this cold. Let's go. Part 1. Book 1. I went down to the Piraeus yesterday with Glaucon, son of Ariston. I wanted to say a prayer to the goddess. That's a great way to start a piece of philosophy with goddess worship. Just remember that. And I was also curious to see how they would manage the festival since they were holding it for the first time. I thought the procession of the local residents was a fine one and that the one conducted by the Thracians was no less outstanding. After we had said our prayer and seen the procession, we started back toward Athens. Polymarchus saw us from a distance as we were seizing off for home and told his slave to run and ask us to wait for him. The slave caught hold of my cloak from behind. Polymachus wants you to wait, he said. I turned around and asked where Polymachus was. He's coming up behind you, he said. Please wait for him. And Glaucon replied, all right, we will. Just then, Polymachus caught up with us. Adamantius, Glaucon's brother, was with him, and so were Nicaratus, son of Nicias, and some others, all of whom were apparently on their way from the procession. So we've got some characters here. It looks like a group of about five men, all worshiping a goddess hanging out on the side of the road. Polymachus said, It looks to me, Socrates, as if you two are starting off for Athens. It looks the way it is then, I said. Now we see that the I, the first person, is in fact Socrates. Good to know. 
Do you see how many we are? He said. I do. Well, you must either prove stronger than we are, or you will have to stay here. Isn't there another alternative, namely that we persuade you to let us go? But could you persuade us if we won't listen? Certainly not, Glaucon said. Well, we won't listen. You'd better make up your mind to that. Don't you know, Adamantia said, that there is to be a torch race on horseback for the goddess tonight? On horseback, I said. That's something new. Are they going to race on horseback and hand the torches on in relays or what? I love this. There's a bunch of dudes talking about sports. And I also like the, um, the introduction of what we call in philosophy the Socratic method, which is to lead by questioning. And um, there's a good amount of show don't tell here where Socrates just starts in responding to questions with questions, um, which is his want, which is what he's known for. Um, and if you were lucky enough to go to university abroad, you do a lot more of Socratic learning. But um, I had a fair amount with Thomas Magnell at Drew University as well. So here we've got them standing by the side of the road talking about this new sport, which is fire horse racing, which actually sounds pretty cool. Um, so let us go back to the text. On horseback, I said? That's something new. Are they going to race on horseback and hand the torches on in relays or what? In relays, Polemicus said, and there will be an all-night festival that will be well worth seeing. After dinner, we'll go out and look at it. We'll be joined there by many of the young men, and we'll talk. So don't go. Stay. It seems, Glaucon said, that we'll have to stay. If you think so, I said, then we must. So we went to Polemicus's house, and there we found Lysias and Euthydemus, the brothers of Polemicus, the... Thersimachus of Calcyon, Carmantides of Panania, Clea, oh boy, guys, we're going to have a great time with these names, Cleodophon, son of Aristominus, Polemicus's father, Cephalus, was also there, and I thought he looked quite old, as I hadn't seen him for some time. He was sitting in a sort of cushioned chair with a wreath on his head, and he had been offering a sacrifice in the courtyard there were a circle of chairs and we sat down by the, by him um there was a circle of chairs that was my mistake so i like that the first argument of socrates that socrates has in plato's republic um he loses intentionally so that he can party with his friends and this is socratic philosophy truly in action and if you were a philosophy major you know that this truly is the goal of philosophy, is to drink wine with friends and worship the goddess and watch horse races. We'll go on. As soon as he saw me, Cephalus welcomed me and said, Socrates, you don't come down to Paris to see us as often as you should. If it were still easy for me to walk to town, you wouldn't have to come here. We'd come to you. But as it is, you ought to come here more often, for you should know that as the physical pleasures wither away, my desire for conversation and its pleasures grow. So do as I say. Stay with these young men now, but come regularly to see us, just as you would to friends or relatives. Indeed, Cephalus, I replied, I enjoy talking with the very old, for we should ask them, as we might ask those who have traveled a road that we too will probably have to follow. What kind of road it is, whether rough and difficult or smooth and easy. And I'll gladly find out from you what you think about this, as you have reached the point in life the poets call 
the threshold of old age. It is a difficult time. What is your report about it? Well, Socrates, being the greatest house guest of all time, immediately calls his host old and asks him to describe what old age is like. And yet I believe that his um, thirst for knowledge and inquiry is so pure that it's not offensive. By God, Socrates, I'll tell you exactly what it is. A number of us who are more or less the same age often get together in accordance with the old saying. When we meet, the majority complain about the lost pleasures they remember from their youth. Lost pleasures of sex, drinking parties, feasts, and the other things that go along with them. And they get angry as if they had been deprived of important things and had lived well then but are now hardly living at all. Some others moan about the abuse heaped on the old people by their relatives and because this of this they repeat over and over that old age is the cause of many evils but i don't think they blame the real cause socrates for if old age were really the cause i should have suffered in the same way and so should everyone else my age but as it is i've met some who don't feel like that in the least indeed i was once present when someone asked the poet sophocles how are you as far as sex goes sophocles can you still make love with a woman Quiet, man, the poet replied. I am very glad to have escaped from all that, like a slave who has escaped from a savage and tyrannical master. I thought at the time that he was right, and I still do, for old age brings peace and freedom from all such things. When the appetites relax and cease to importune us, everything Sophocles said comes to pass, and we escape from many mad masters. In these matters, and in one concerning relatives, the real cause is an old age, Socrates, but the way people live. If they are moderate and contented, old age, too, is only moderately onerous. If they aren't, both old age and youth are hard to bear. Wow. Wow. How wise. I guess that's why we're reading this. <laughs> um, I believe we're coming up on something that philosophers call the golden mean and the real impact of a life of moderation on the soul and the mind and the ability to live, I want to say peacefully, but my soul really wants to say gracefully and easefully. I admired him saying that and I wanted him to tell me more. So I urged him on. When you say things like that, Cephalus, I suppose that the majority of people don't agree that they think you bear old age more easily, not because of the way you live, but because you're wealthy. And for the wealthy, they say, have many consolations. That's true. They don't agree. And there is something in what they say, though, not as much as they think. Themistocles' report is relevant here. When someone from Cerphius insulted him by saying that his high reputation was due to his city and not to himself, he replied that he had been a Serfian, he wouldn't be famous, and neither would the other even if he had been an Athenian. The same applies to those who aren't rich and find old age hard to bear. A good person wouldn't easily bear old age if he were poor, but a bad one would not be at peace with himself even if he were wealthy. Did you inherit most of your wealth, Cephalus, I asked, or did you make it for yourself? Socrates has now disobeyed the two, two of the cardinal codes of being a guest, insulting someone's age, and asking personal questions about how they've made their wealth. He is just in pursuit of knowledge and really not in pursuit of good etiquette, but I am with him, and I think we should continue. What did I make? Let's go back to the question. 
Did you inherit most of your wealth, Cephalus, I asked, or did you make it for yourself? What I did make for myself, Socrates, you ask. As a moneymaker, I'm in a sort of mean between my grandfather and my father. My grandfather and namesake inherited about the same amount of wealth as I possess, but multiplied it many times. My father, Lysanias, however, diminished that amount even less than I have now. As for me, I'm satisfied to leave my sons here not less, but a little more than I inherited. The reason I ask is that you don't seem to love money too much, and those who haven't made their own money are usually like you, but those who've made it for themselves are twice as fond of it as those who haven't. Just as poets love their poems and fathers love their children, so those who have made their own money don't just care about it because it's useful, as other people do, but because it's something they've made themselves. This makes them poor company, where they haven't a good word to say about anything except money. That's true. It certainly is. But tell me something else. What's the greatest good you've received from being wealthy? Well, I have to probably say... Let me start that sentence again. Well, I have to say probably... Nope, let me start one more time. (laughs) It certainly is, but tell me something else. What is the greatest good you received from being wealthy? That's Socrates' question. What I have to say probably wouldn't persuade most people. But you know, Socrates, that when someone thinks his end is near, he becomes frightened and concerned about things he didn't fear before. It's... Then, that the stories were told about Hades, how people who've been unjust here must pay the penalty there. Stories he used to make fun of, twist his soul this way and that, for fear they're true. And whether because of the weakness of old age, or because he is now closer to what happens in Hades and has a clearer view of it, or whatever it is, he is filled with foreboding and fear. And he examines himself to see whether he has been unjust to anyone. If he finds many injustices in his life, he awakes from sleep in terror, as children do, and lives in anticipation of bad things to come. But when someone who knows he hasn't been unjust has sweet good hope as his constant companion, a nurse to his old age, as Pinder says, for he puts it charmingly, Socrates, when he says that when someone lives just and pious life, sweet hope is in his heart, nurse and companion to his age, hope, captain of that ever-twisting mind of mortal men. That's a quote from Pinder. How wonderfully well he puts that. It's in this connection that wealth is most valuable, I'd say. Not every man, but for a decent and orderly one. Wealth can do a lot to save us from having to cheat or deceive someone against our will or from having to depart for that or other place in fear because we owe sacrifice to a god or money or to a person. It has many other uses, But benefit for benefit, I'd say that this is how it is most useful to a man of any understanding. A fine sentiment, Cephalus. (laughs) A fine sentiment, Cephalus. But speaking of this very thing itself, namely justice, are we to say unconditionally that it is speaking truth and paying whatever debts one has incurred? Or is doing these things sometimes just and sometimes unjust? I mean this sort of thing, for example. Everyone would surely agree that if a sane man lends a weapon to a friend and then asks for them back when he is out of his mind, the friend shouldn't return them and wouldn't be acting justly if he did. Nor should anyone be willing to tell the whole truth to someone who is out of his mind. That's true. Then the definition of justice isn't speaking truth and repaying what one's borrowed. 
certainly is Socrates, Polemicus interrupting, if indeed we're saying to trust Simonides at all. Simonides is a pre-Socratic philosopher. Um, he's a poet. Um, so here we are coming up with a, a very classic platonic um, example. What is more just to return the gun you borrowed from your neighbor when you went hunting um, while he's in a heat of rage and may use it on someone? Or, you know, how do these values kind of come into play where you balance some greater value above this very cut and dry idea of justice? So Plato um, is... And Socrates here speaking, they kind of go on a little like, um, not smear campaign. It's kind of like they're an Instagram influencer and they're just casting a little bit of shade on other influencers if you think it that way. So that's why they're talking about Simonides right now. Um, Polemicus has interrupted the conversation with Cephalus. He's going to introduce a different point of view. And so we are able to weigh these points of views as different characters are um are saying them so it's a little bit easier than reading with like a balanced essay similar to the one we previously read by isaiah berlin it's like more like a play all right let's start with socrates again then the definition of justice isn't speaking the truth and repaying what is one has borrowed certainly is socrates said polemicus interrupting if indeed we're to trust simonides at all well, then Cephalus said, I'll hand over the argument to you as I have to look after the sacrifice. Exit stage left. So Polemicus said, am I then to be your heir in everything? You certainly are, Cephalus said, laughing. And off he went to the sacrifice. So the son makes a little joke like, am I inheriting this conversation too when we just talked about your wealth? Funny, cute. Okay. Then tell us, heir to the argument, I said, just what Simonides stated about justice that you consider correct. He stated that it is just to give to each what is owed to him. And it is a fine saying in my view. It's kind of like a Lannister always pays their debts. Okay. Well, now, isn't it easy to doubt Simonides for he's a wise and godlike man? But what exactly does he mean? Perhaps you know Polemicus, but I don't understand him. Clearly, he doesn't mean what he said a moment ago, that just to give back whatever a person has lent to you, even if he's out of his mind when he asks for it. And yet, what he has lent to you surely something that's owed to him, isn't it? Yes. But it's absolutely not to be given to him when he's out of his mind. That's true. Then it seems that Simonides must have meant something different when he says to return what is owed is just. Something different indeed. By God, he means that friends owe it to other friends to do good for them and never harm. I follow you. Someone doesn't give a lender back what he's owed by giving him gold. If doing so would be harmful, both he and the lender are friends. Isn't that what you think Simonides meant? It is. But what about this? Should one also give one's enemies whatever is owed to them? By all means, one should give them what is owed to them. And in my view, what enemies owe each other is appropriately and precisely something bad. Ooh, Polemicus. It seems that Simonides was speaking in riddles, just like a poet. 
when he said what justice is, for he thought it just to give each what is appropriate to him, and this is what he called giving him what is owed to him. What else do you think he meant? Then what do you think he'd answer if someone asked him, Simonides, which of these things that are owed or that are appropriate for someone or something to have does the craft we call medicine give, and to whom or what does it give them? It's clear that it gives medicines, food, and drink to bodies. And what is owed or appropriate things does the craft we call cooking give, and to whom does it give them? It gives seasonings to food. Good. Now what does the craft we call justice give, and to whom and what does it give? Well, if we are to follow the previous answer, Socrates, it gives benefits to friends and harm to enemies. Simonides means then that to treat friends well and enemies badly is justice? I believe so. And who is most capable of treating friends well and enemies badly in the matters of disease and health? A doctor. And who can do the best in a storm at sea? A ship's captain. And what about a just person? In what actions and what work is he most capable of benefiting friends and harming enemies? In wars and alliances, I suppose. All right. Now, when people aren't sick, Polemicus, a doctor is useless to them? True. And what is a ship captain to those who aren't sailing? Useless. And to people who aren't at war, a just man is useless? No. Well, I don't think so at all. Justice is also useful in peacetime, then. It is. And so is farming, isn't it? Yeah. For getting produce? Well, sure. And shoemaking as well? Well, yeah, for getting shoes, I think you'd say certainly. Well, then, what is justice useful for getting and using in peacetime? Contracts, Socrates spoken like the son of a very rich man, Polemicus says. And by contracts, do you mean partnerships or what? Yeah, I mean partnerships. Is someone a good and useful partner in a game of checkers because he's just or because he's a checker player? Because he's a checker player. And in laying bricks and stones, is a person better or more useful partner than a builder? No, not at all. And what kind of partnership then is just person a better partner than a builder or a liar player? And in what way... Is a liar player is better than just a person that's hitting the right notes? In money matters, I think, except perhaps Polemicus in using money. For whenever one needs to buy a horse jointly, I think a horse breeder is more useful partner, isn't he? Well, apparently. Then when one needs to buy a boat, isn't a boat builder or a ship's captain? Hmm, probably. In what joint use of silver or gold, then, is a just person more useful partner than others? Hmm, when it must be deposited for safekeeping, Socrates. This is Polemicus. You mean whenever there is no need to use them, but only to keep them? That's right. Then it is when money isn't being used that justice is useful for it? Well, I'm afraid so. And whenever one needs to keep pruning knife safe, but not to use it, justice is both useful in partnerships and for the individual. When you need to use it, however, it is a skill at vine pruning that's useful? Apparently. You'll agree then that when one needs to keep a shield or a liar safe and to not use them, justice is the useful thing. But when you need to use them, soldiery or musicianship, musicianship, that's hard to say, is useful necessarily and so too with everything else everything else (laughs) and so too with everything else justice is useless when they are in use but useful when they aren't it looks that way
In that case, justice isn't worth much, since it is only useful for useless things. But let's look into the following point. Isn't a person most able to land a blow, whether it is boxing or any kind of fight, almost most able to guard against it? Certainly. And the one who is most able to guard against disease is also most able to produce it unnoticed. So it seems to me anyway. I don't understand that one. Produce a disease unnoticed. I don't understand that one. I guess we're just going to take a mulligan on that. So it seems to me anyway. And the one who is the best guardian of an army is the very one who can steal the enemy's plans and dispositions? Certainly. Whenever someone is a clever guardian, then he is also a clever thief. Probably so. If a just person is clever at guarding money, therefore, must he also be clever at stealing it? According to your argument, if that's true at any rate. Poor Polemicus, he's just getting yanked along down this rabbit trail and trying to keep up. A just person turned out, then, it seems to be a kind of a thief. Maybe you learned this from Homer. He's fond of a, a delicious and a maternal grandfather of Odysseus, whom he describes as better than everyone at lying and stealing. According to you, Homer Simonides, then, justice seems to be some sort of craft of stealing, one that benefits friends and harms enemies. Isn't that what you meant? No, by God, it isn't. I, I don't know any more than what I did mean, but I still believe that to benefit one's friends and harms one's enemies is justice. Pause. Socrates is at war with the poets, which sounds poetic in and of itself. But the reason is that Socrates believes that we need much, we need to be teaching people reason, the way of thinking, the way of coming to clear and concise ideas that have been time tested and tried and looked at from different angles. And up until now, um, Greek philosophy and Greek, I want to say philosophy, but what it really was, was kind of like wives tales or passed down mythologies and um, nursery rhyme lessons learned kind of things was passed down by the poets and a lot of his work and his life is about culture shift and shifting the mind of the Athenian and the mind of the Grecian from a mythological based reasoning to a argument-based reasoning and so he will shade the poets at any chance he gets he did it last time he's just done it a couple times in this argument already but it's really because it is a goal of his to get people to not receive knowledge but to create knowledge okay let us carry on no by god it isn't but i i don't know anymore what i did mean but i still believe it's to benefit one's friends and harm one enemies is justice Speaking of friends, did you mean those a person believes to be good and useful to him or those who are actually good and useful, even if he doesn't think they are, and similarly with enemies? Probably one loves those he considers good and useful and hates those he considers bad and harmful. But surely people often make mistakes about this, believing that many people to be good and useful when they aren't and making the opposite mistake about enemies. Your girl is guilty of that. Polemicus says... That's true indeed. Then good people are their enemies and bad ones are their friends. That's right. And so is it just to benefit bad people and harm good ones? Well, apparently. But good people are just and able to do no wrong? True. Then in accordance to your account, it's just to do bad things to those who do no injustice. No, no, no. That's not it at all, Socrates. My account must have been a bad one. It's just then. Is it to harm unjust people and benefit the just ones? It's obviously a more attractive view than the other one anyways. 
Well, then it follows, Polemicus, that it is just for the many who are mistaken in their judgment to harm their friends who are bad and benefit their enemies who are good. And so we arrive at a conclusion opposite to that of what Simonides meant. Well, that's the problem with poetry, right? He's trying to show us that. Huh, that certainly follows. But let's change our definition for it seems that we don't define friends and enemies correctly. How do you define them, Polemicus? A friend is someone who is believed to be useful. And how are we to change that now? Someone who is both believed to be useful and is useful is a friend. Someone who is believed to be useful but isn't is believed to be a friend but isn't and the same for an enemy. Okay, according to this account then, a good person will be a friend and a bad one an enemy. Yes. So you want us to add something to what we said before about justice when we said that it's just to treat friends well and enemies badly? You want us to add that it is just to treat a friend well who is good and right to harm an enemy who is bad? Right. That seems fine to me. It is then. The role of a just man to harm anyone? Certainly he must harm those who are both bad and enemies. Do horses become better or worse? when they are harmed <sighs> worse with respect to virtue that makes dogs good or the one that makes horses good the one that makes horses good and when dogs are harmed they become worse in the virtue that makes the dog good not horses necessarily then won't we say the same about human beings too, that when they are harmed, they become worse in human virtue? Indeed. But isn't justice a human virtue? Yeah, certainly. Then people who are harmed must become more unjust? Well, so it seems. Can musicians make people unmusical through music? No, they cannot. Or horsemen make people unhorsemanlike through horsemanship? I like that sentence. No. Well then, can those who are just make people unjust through justice? In a word, can those who are good make people bad through virtue? They cannot. It isn't the function of heat to cool things, but of its opposite. Yes. Nor does the function of dryness make things wet, but its opposite, indeed. <sighs> Poor Polemicus. Nor the function of goodness to harm, but of its opposite, apparently. And a just person is good, indeed. Then, Polemicus, it isn't the function of a just person to harm a friend or anyone else. Rather, it is the function of his opposite, an unjust person. In my view, that's completely true, Socrates. If anyone tells us then that it is just to give each other what he's owed and understands by this that a just man should harm his enemies and benefit his friends, he isn't wise to say it, since what he says isn't true. For it has become clear to us it's never just to harm anyone. I agree. There we go. We broke down the idea from the poets. Um, there's this phrase, Lex Talonius, I'm not saying that right, that I learned in high school from Dr. Cannavale. Um, at Vernon Township High School where we were being taught English by PhDs because I grew up in a magical childhood um, where one of the issues at the end of the Odyssey and the Iliad is this notion of kind of this never-ending revenge cycle and this is kind of well known in the poets the mythology of the poets that Socrates is railing against and you have Lex Talonius until you have Deus Ex Machina. So you have this 
I get revenge on you for your revenge and you get revenge on me for my revenge and then I get revenge on you for your revenge on me which is your revenge on my revenge until the deus ex machina which means God comes out of the machine which is an interesting phrase and stops everyone puts the kids back in their corners and what this is all part of the zeitgeist that Socrates is like writing this in and so what he's saying is that that is not the function of justice and this is a major departure from a cultural way of thinking and so with this we end our first 11 pages of Plato's Republic and uh, we shall pick up on our next episode make sure you check us out on Spotify and Anchor and Instagram and you can check me out on Instagram at Justine Byrne as well and we shall pick up on page 11 ASAP